Well, a couple of years ago, um, my family began to practice uh, a Sabbath, where for 24 hours out of our week, uh, we would stop, we would rest. Uh, usually it is about sundown Sunday to sundown on Monday, and it involves saying no. We, uh, we say no to work which uh, sort of depletes us, uh, even if it's good work, um, but work that sort of uh, takes away from, from our physical energy, our, our mental energy, our spiritual uh, strength, and, uh, and, and work that we tend to find our identity in, we, we say no to. So for me, that means uh, putting away uh, my cell phone and not looking at email and um, not maybe you know, reading books, but not necessarily commentaries and things of that nature. And it's saying no to one thing, but it's also saying yes uh, to activities uh, which, which feed, which, which uh, nourish, which help. Um, and so that might be taking a, a, a walk or a hike, or it might be um, driving to a state park to identify a, a camping spot for us that we'll, we'll, we'll find in the, in the summertime. Um, but, but whatever activity uh, that brings us together as a family, but also um, is nourishing and, and restful. And in that, reminded that our identity is not found in the doing, our identity is found in the being with Jesus, that, that our identity is found in what he has done for us. And, and we found that within Sabbath, the, the rest is, is beautiful, um, and work is beautiful, like work is God, God made, um, but to be able to rest from that is also God made, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, now, what we, we do is we found that um, in order to have a good Sabbath, you need to prepare for it. So uh, rather than having things hang over our head, like you know, grocery shopping or um, you know, picking up the house or um, you know, folding laundry and putting it away, like we do all those things beforehand, and, uh, and for me, preparation actually begins uh, Saturday afternoon. Uh, Saturday about noon, um, I, stop, uh, I stop eating. I, I fast. And uh, part of, of fasting for me is um, I need to uh, allow the Holy Spirit to guide this act, uh, that it needs to be dependent on him and not any gifts or skills or knowledge or insight that I have, but it needs to be on him. And so um, in fasting, I, I make that room for him. But then Sunday afternoon, I break that fast, um, hopefully with a lighter meal, and, uh, and then um, I, I'm more hungry as I go into our, our Sabbath. And, and why I like to be hungry is because one of the things I enjoy doing for Sabbath is cooking. Um, I like to, uh, to, to spend time in the kitchen. It's restful for me. It's relaxing. That kind of work is nourishing for me. For you, it might be in the garden or, or, or something like that. But for me, it's in the kitchen, and, uh, and I like to cook. And my ideal Sabbath uh, involves a choice cut of beef, um, and uh, seasoned to perfection and, and spent time, you know, uh, you know making it as, as good as I can. And, and, and maybe it's a side of cheesy potatoes or, or Melissa likes uh, 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 Brussels sprouts, roasted Brussels sprouts. And, um, and, and you, you back that up with a full-bodied red wine and, and you got something. And for me to, to sit down uh, out of that hunger and come to the table and, and bite into that first piece of steak followed by that first sip of, of, of wine, and that's it. Like that's, that's a beautiful moment. I really, really enjoy that moment. Now, if I take my time and if I enjoy that meal slowly, right, if, if I if savor each bite and I enjoy conversation with my family around the table, then what I notice at some point is that I'm full. That I'm satisfied, that I look down at my plate and there's still some steak left, there's still some potatoes left, there's, there's still wine in the bottle left, but I'm good. I'm good. And, and, and sometimes, though, I don't take my time. Sometimes I rush. 
Sometimes I eat fast, and when I eat fast, I don't pay attention to my, when my body's full, and so I go beyond full. And then I go into unpleasant full, right? And I go to the feeling not so good, right? And I take a good thing and I make an ultimate thing out of it. And, you know, what I recognize that, that in Sabbath, I've learned that work is good, but rest is good. And I've learned that hunger is good and satisfaction is good. Like, all of these things are things that God made that we experience physically in order to understand something spiritually. That work and, and rest and, and hunger and satisfaction are things that we are meant to ultimately find in him. And when we look to him for those things, we're satisfied. We get it. When we don't, we don't. This morning we're going to be in the fourth beatitude, which deals with hunger and satisfaction. Before we dig in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you remind us of your patience and your grace, your deep love for us. Lord Jesus, I pray that we're reminded of what lengths you've gone to to redeem us. Holy Spirit, I pray that the words people hear are yours and not mine. God, I, I pray that, uh, that people will hear uh, love in words, um, that they'll hear your heart. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 5. We're spending this year going through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is where Jesus gives us this sermon that gives us a picture of what he intends life to look like for us. And there's two key words to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. One is this Greek word, makairos. It's where we see blessed in the Beatitudes there. And it's this picture of flourishing, thriving, fruitful kind of life. The second word is teleos. It's, it's seen in that word perfect that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is giving us a picture of a complete life, a perfect life, a life that is fully Formed. And so we, we could sort of sum up the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount by saying that Jesus is giving us a vision for a, a thrivingly complete sort of life. But more than that, it's a picture of Jesus himself. It, it, this is an explanation of who he is and what he is and, and what he is about. And, and for us to sit at Jesus' feet and to listen to this sermon from him, it's to be with him, and it's to seek to become like him, and it's to seek to do what he did. And in the process of this, we are transformed into him. We are all being formed into something. The question is, what are we being formed into, and who or what is forming us, if it's not Jesus? So, the sermon begins with a series of eight statements. We call them Beatitudes. And it goes like this. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the beatitude that we're looking at this morning, the fourth one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. This beatitude builds on the three that came before it, and it's necessary to understand uh, this in order to see the ones that come after it. 
But what it's building on is this foundation that begins with the first beatitude, which says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, meaning we come to the table with nothing. We come to the table empty. We, have come, we come to the table and we've got nothing to offer God to say, because of what I bring, you owe me. We're empty. And, and, and not only are we empty, but we've mourned that which we had. We look at the fact that, that we, in all of our relationships, our relationship with God and our relationships with one another, our relationship with ourselves, and very relationship with creation, that we've exchanged this currency of love for this, this currency of power. And, and out of that power, we use our, our, our people that we're in relationship with. We use. And as a result of that, we damage. And we've broken this world, and we've broken ourselves, and, and the destruction is all around us, and it is worth mourning over. We mourn our sin. We mourn what we've become. And then out of this attitude of mourning, we, we see that we have no right to assert ourselves. No right to, to make claims on God or make claims on anybody else. And it's with this attitude of meekness that we begin to take our cues from God and that we allow him to lead us and we find a better walk, as David pointed out to us last week. But you see, we come to the table at this point and we're, we're empty. And now we're ready for something. We're ready to be filled. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're going to break this down into four parts this morning and handle them piece by piece. The first is, what does it mean to hunger and thirst? We're going to look at this desire aspect. First, we're going to talk about desire. Secondly, we're going to talk about what does it mean uh, that Jesus is talking about righteousness here? What is this about? And thirdly, uh, what does satisfaction look like? And lastly, when it comes to this blessedness, what does flourishing look like in light of all of this? So let's start with desire. I think it's important that you understand that God wants you to want. Uh, Jesus isn't Buddha. Now, Buddhism is, is sort of sent around to this idea that all of your desires are bad, therefore remove all desire, and you'll receive you know, enlightenment. You'll, you'll achieve up to higher things. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I want you to want. I want you to desire. What do you want? And I don't know about you, but uh, where I stand this morning is, is I'm full of want. There's lots of things that I want. Uh, I want a food truck. I, I want to, uh, to serve handheld uh, delights to hungry people outside of a food truck, just as a side gig, you know? And so uh, out of that want, I, um, I look at uh, trucks on Facebook Marketplace, and I, I, look at, um, I look at recipes online, and I, I go to restaurants and I eat sandwiches for research. And... Um, <laughs> There's lots of things that I, that I they do, but, but there are some things that I don't do. And, and, and I don't put a business plan together, and I'm not working hard to define a menu, and I'm not doing research on what it looks like to, to have food and safety, you know, sort of codes and clearances and licenses and, and all that sort of stuff. Like, apparently, you can't just sell food to people without the state's, like, approval. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm doing the work that goes into that. See, sometimes, sometimes our wants are just, they're just fantasies, Right? Like, we want something, we don't really pursue it, but it's okay that we want something. But it never goes past that, you know what I mean? But there are other things, there are other desires that we have. And we recognize that, that we, if we look hard, we do pursue those things. And, and oftentimes we're pursuing them without even recognizing it. Desires for approval, acceptance, desires uh, to, to, to feel at, at peace, or to, desires for safety and security, or desires for 
um, for comfort, pleasure. In an effort to get those things, we, we act. And oftentimes we act in ways that reflect that we've exchanged love for power and we use people in order to fulfill, fulfill those desires. What we discover in that is that ultimately, even if we achieve what we've aimed for, it doesn't satisfy. It's empty. Um, I know what Paul means when he writes in Romans 7, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will save me, deliver me from this body of death? That's me. Jesus' answer to that question is, let me give you a different want. I think part of the problem with, uh, with many Christians is that we have taken the work of Jesus, applied it to ourselves, and called it good. That we hear the words of Jesus from the cross, it is finished, and we've taken that to mean that we are finished. That spiritually speaking, we've accepted the grace that God affords to us, and we're done. We got our ticket and train ride to heaven, and until we die, we're just hanging out. But we're done. The spiritual aspect of our, our lives, the spiritual dimension of who and, and what we're becoming, it's, it's already been answered by Jesus. It's, it's finished. And the truth is, is, when you look at the New Testament, you can't read that at all. And in Jesus' very words are hunger and thirst. In other words, want more. Want more. That's why the author of Hebrews puts it this way. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. He's talking to Christians and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. In other words, we haven't reached the finish line yet. Jesus is the finish line. There's a race to be run. There's a goal before us. We are not there yet. We're not complete yet. We're not finished yet. And yet many Christians have just sort of said, I'm good. And that's not the life that we've been called to. It's not abundant life. It's not thriving life. It's not flourishing life. It's not a complete life. So many of us are not running, and some of us are running towards the wrong thing altogether. Notice, though, that Jesus, in talking about desire, he uses this far more illustrative language here, hunger and thirst. You know, for, for somebody who uh, is, is often driven by my stomach, these are powerful words. Hunger and thirst. Uh, it, you know, you look at, at the beginning of Scripture, and what do you see? You see that life and death are symbolized by food. You look at the end of Scripture, and what do you see? A meal, a banquet in the presence of God, surrounded by people from all tribes and tongues and nations. You look at the ministry of Jesus. We saw this when we went through the book of Luke. That in, in Luke, what do you see Jesus doing? He's either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. He's always eating. And he's sur surrounded at a table with people. And he's, and he's feeding them not, not just physical food, he's spiritual food as he's, as he's pouring into them. Food is such a powerful illustrator in, in Scripture. And here Jesus, once again, and he's saying, hunger, thirst for something. I want you to want. Do we want? Well, I think John Piper put it best in the hunger for God. The weakness of our hunger for God is not because he is unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. We keep ourselves stuffed with other things. You know, um, 
Jesus' first audience talks about hunger and thirst. They understood hunger in ways that we, most of us don't. The reality is, is that there are people in the West who are hungry, who, who lack food, right? I'm willing to go out on a limb here and say most of those people aren't in this room. That most of us don't know what it means to be really hungry. We can go through the drive-thru. We can uh, uh, have the DoorDash app on our phone. Uh, we can pull up to Kroger and have groceries loaded in our trunk. And, and we can have it even delivered to our house. Most of us don't know this kind of hunger. But the reality is, is a lot of us aren't finding nourishment. A lot of the food that we eat, it's not great. You ever go through a drive-thru and you get that large burger and, and, and fries and Coke and, and an hour later you find you're hungry again? Because it wasn't nourishing. It's not just food that's the issue for us. It's information. You think about the amounts of information that we consume. The amounts of information that are coming at you at any given moment, whether it's your weather app or your news app or your social media apps. All of this information is coming at you, and, it, and it's coming at you in such a way that it's never meant to satisfy you. The goal is never satisfaction. The goal is for you to click on this so you can click on that, so you can click on that, so that a half an hour later you can wake up and find that your life has just been sucked away from you. The amount of information that's coming out, like, it, it's never satisfying. Most of it's not even informative. You think about the stories we consume. We are consumers of stories. We love stories. We have this new term, binge-watching. Binge watching. It's related to food, right? Where you'll sit down and you'll watch your favorite show and, and you don't even have to press a button. The next show will just queue up and the next one and the next one and the next one. And it'll be one o'clock in the morning and you'll realize I've watched six episodes of this show and another one's queuing up and I don't want to go to bed because it's never satisfying. Whether it's movies or whether it's, it's TV shows, fiction novels, whatever it is. We keep consuming and we consume and there's, where's the fullness? We stuff ourselves with other things. He goes on to say, he points out this, that, that it's not just evil things that we pursue and stuff ourselves with. It's not just bad stuff that is damaging to our physical bodies and, and spirits and, and, and minds. It's also good stuff that we're turning to. Um, Piper notes this, the greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of the earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Anything can stand in the way of true discipleship, not just evil and not just food, but anything. Nor should it be surprising that the greatest competitors for our devotion and affection for God would be some of most precious gifts. Our hunger is, is being dulled by this, this over-consumerism we have. And it's not a, a consumerism for evil things. It's, it's for good things. But good things are becoming ultimate things. So we're not hungry. We're not hungry. Maybe we should not say, do I want? We should ask, do I hunger? Do I thirst? Alongside the Sermon on the Mount this year, we're going to uh, look at spiritual disciplines. 
We look at the life of Jesus and we see that there are practices of his that's enabled him to live the kind of life that he lived. We call them spiritual disciplines because they're a little bit hard. We don't look to them because they make us righteous. We look to them because they actually will set us free. We've talked about the disciplines of silence and solitude. And in a few months, we're going to talk about the discipline of fasting. But I want to just speak to it just, just for a second here. Um, we're about to be, enter the season of Lent. And, and, and fasting is this practice of identifying good things in your life that you're going to say no to. That you say, for a period of time, I'm going to say no to this because I want room for Jesus. Uh, fasting, especially regards to food, is a way to get at our heart through our stomach. It's a, it's a, a way of experiencing hunger, and in the experience of hunger, look for satisfaction in Jesus. And so I want to ask you to consider, as we enter this season of Lent and we travel towards Good Friday, we travel towards Easter Sunday, what might be something to let go of in order to make room for Jesus. Consider it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does it mean? What is it that we're hungering and thirsting after? Jesus says righteousness. D.A. Carson writes, righteousness here refers to the absolute conformity to God's will. Absolute conformity to God's will. This is a state we were in before Genesis 3. This is the state our first parents were in when they were naked and unashamed walking with God. This is the state we've been redeemed for. Absolute conformity to God. That enables us to stand before him without shame. Here is a, is a test of doctrine for us. This is the test of, of whether or not you're a Christian. Ask yourself this, if you believe you can attain this righteousness through your actions, do you believe you can have a righteousness through what you do or what you abstain from doing? Can you be righteous from your choices? If you think so, you're not a Christian. If you believe that this righteousness is a gift of grace from God, merely accepted through asking, and that's too easy, you think you need to add to it, you think that Jesus and his work on the cross does a lot, but through going to church or reading your Bible or doing this, that, and the other things, you complete the salvation? You're not a Christian. If you think that righteousness is too hard, it's too difficult, that no human being can ever attain to it, it's an impossible standard, which is an ungood God sets before you and laughs at you because you can't make. You think it's too hard? You're not a Christian. You see, this is the doctrine of salvation. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but that's, this righteousness that we receive does not remain alone. That what Jesus does, he lives this sinless life that we can't live, and he takes that life and he goes to the cross. And there at the cross, he exchanges places with us. His righteousness imputed to us. Our sin imputed to him. The wrath we deserve falls on him. God looks at us now. If we embrace him and what he's done for us, he looks at us and he declares us just. Justified. We are robed in his righteousness. We have the righteousness of Christ. But so many of us take that to mean that we, we accept this gift of grace and then we do nothing with it for the rest of our lives. Where the truth of the matter is, we are supposed to take this righteousness 
and run. Run with it. The reformers are, are fond of saying the works of law point us to Jesus for justification. Jesus points us to the law for sanctification. Meaning, we see the standard that, and how impossible it is and we look at Jesus and Jesus fulfills the standard for us. But then Jesus points us back to the law and says, now, try. Live in light of this. You see, positionally, because of Jesus, we're righteous. But you and I both know we have not yet become in actuality what he's made us positionally. That there is this journey of being conformed to Jesus, this, this becoming that we need to embark on. That, that by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us day by day, moment by moment, we are becoming more and more like him. More than a definition for righteousness, though, we need an example for righteousness, and we have it. David Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, righteousness is nothing but longing and desire to be like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Look at him. Look at his portrait in the Gospels. Look at him when he was here on earth in his incarnate state. Look at him in his positive obedience to God's law. Look at him in his reaction to other people, his kindness, his compassion, his sensitive nature. Look at him in his reaction to his enemies and all that they did to him. There is the portrait. And you and I, according to the New Testament doctrine, have been born again and have been fashioned anew after that pattern and image. The man or woman, therefore, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is the man or woman who wants to be like that. Their supreme, supreme desire is to be like Christ. See, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for Christ. That we would seek to be with him and to become like him and to do what he did. We want to be transformed into the image of the Son of God. That's the aim. That's the goal. Do you hunger and thirst for Jesus? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Before we get into this, this vision of, of flourishing, let's discuss what, what, is, what is meant by satisfaction? How is it that we are satisfied by hungering and thirst for righteousness? We need to overcome this, this idea that we as Christians, because we simply have Christ, are finished and we're done, and there's not a journey or a race yet to be run before us. That if we will run after it, we'll discover satisfaction. You ever, um, well, let's say Thanksgiving. Anybody enjoy Thanksgiving meal? Nobody? Okay. <clears throat> for, for me and the other three people in the room that like Thanksgiving. You come to the Thanksgiving meal, and I don't know about you, but oftentimes already half full. Between the cheese ball and the crackers and the little smoked wieners and barbecue sauce, I'm halfway there. <clears throat> you come to the table, and all of a sudden, all of these foods are just heaped onto your plate. And you begin to eat, and you realize you're full, but you keep eating. And all of a sudden, the joy that you had over Thanksgiving meal is no longer there because you're overly full. You're overly stuffed. You're, you are now uncomfortable, if not in pain. Problem is, we don't know how to be satisfied. We oftentimes do take it too far. There's this balance between emptiness and overfulness, and we have a really hard time figuring that out with alcohol. You know, for, for us, it, 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 that line between what is the right amount and what's too much and maybe for you, one is too much. So abstain. 
But, but where's the line? And, and we not, not just talk about illicit drugs, but we also do it with things that we're, you know, we consider okay, like shopping, right? Consumering, consumerism in, in other ways. You go out, you buy that outfit, you wear that outfit, and, and you get complimented on that outfit, but then the outfit goes in the closet, and now you need a new outfit. Whatever that hobby is, you know that hobby that you always you gotta you gotta step it up, right? You gotta you gotta upgrade. You gotta get the bigger size tires, or you, you gotta get the, the the longer barrel, or you gotta like whatever the hobby is. Like you you, you need the, the the better sports equipment, the one that the pro uses, or or, or whatever. Like no, nothing is ever enough. Maybe it's, it's your home, like your, your home is in a constant state of remodel. You paint all the rooms, you redo all the floors, you, you make all the, the one sinks, two sinks, you expand the, 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 the whatever, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm done with the house. Either I need to start all over again or I need to sell the house and start all over again. Like it's this constant state of needing more. We never experience this, this satisfaction. You look at, look at athletes, Right, the need to get the title, to win the championship, to get the ring. And then once it's won, I got to repeat. And then I got to three-peat. And then I got to keep going. And you keep going, and it's never enough until all of a sudden you're playing for the New York Jets. <laughs> Nothing's enough. Where, where is the satisfaction in that? And here's what Jesus is saying. Satisfaction is experienced in three ways. Experienced past. Jesus has done it. He's justified you. You embrace him, you're robed in his righteousness, be satisfied in the work that he's done. Satisfaction is there. That's not the end of your spiritual journey. He sends the Holy Spirit to live in you. And you work with the Holy Spirit over the course of your life hungering and thirsting for righteousness? How many of you have been following Jesus for 10, 20, 30, 40 or more years? And you look back on where you were when you first began that journey. Are you more righteous now than you were then? You look at how you responded to life and the things that happened to you. You look at your attitudes and, and, and your behavior, how you treated other people. Compared to then, are you more righteous now? Hopefully you see you are. This growth and sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. So this, this satisfaction, it's past, it's happening present, but it's, but it's future satisfaction. We recognize that one day Jesus is going to come back and the presence of sin is going to be removed. Fully satisfied. Satisfaction, past, present, future. It has happened. It is happening. It's going to happen. This is the satisfaction that Jesus is pointing us to in this, in this beatitude. And, and, he's, and he's saying this is a promise. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be satisfied. Again, Jones says this, for if we hunger and thirst, we shall be filled. There is no qualification at all. It is an absolute statement. It is an absolute promise. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Are you satisfied? Do you look at your life? Do you feel satisfied? If you don't, let me ask you a few questions. First, do we see through our own false righteousness? Do we see the ways that we try to have a righteousness apart from Christ? Paul says in Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I think oftentimes what we do is we mistake being right for being righteous. We have to have the last word. We have to have the final say. Our opinion is the one that counts. We have to be right. You're scrolling through Facebook and you see that post that you don't agree with and instead of scrolling past it, what do you do? Let's go to war. I'm going to be right. You satisfied? You might hit submit and be satisfied, but you're only satisfied until you see the next post you disagree with. It's more important to be right than righteous. See, oftentimes... Being right compromises meekness. Meekness is, is, is not asserting ourselves over God or other people. Meekness is considering others as better than ourselves. Meekness is looking to Jesus who humbled himself, became that of a servant. And yet meekness is not weakness. If you want to know what a picture of meekness and righteousness looked like together, look at Jesus in the temple overturning tables. But we, we, we mistake being right for being righteous. See, right doesn't always mean you look like Jesus. Righteousness does. Next, do we see how desperate we are for a Savior? Look, if you're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, on some level, you think you already are righteous and you don't need a Savior. You don't need help. Do you understand how much you need Jesus to intercede and to put his life in place of yours? Third, are we avoiding everything that is opposed to such righteousness? I think a lot of us, when we we think of what does it mean to oppose such righteousness, we're talking about the evil stuff. We're talking about the really bad stuff that hurts me physically and mentally and spiritually, the things that I need to avoid. And so we avoid those things. At the same time, we're turning toward those good things that we turn into ultimate things, which, as Piper says, is idolatries, and it's scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. We turn to good things. So many of us as Christians are so busy And we fail to understand that just because we're not doing anything wrong, that busyness itself is taking away our hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's taking away our appetite for God. It is dulling our hunger for that which we truly need to live and thrive. Next, fourth. Are we disciplining our lives as to keep righteousness constantly before us? Again, righteousness is best seen in Christ. You can't become Christ-like without being with Christ. We talk about the this, this spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. Are you getting away with him? Can you just carve out 10 minutes out of your day in, in this silence to be alone with him, turn out the noise of the world, to, to leave your screens behind and just be with him for 10 minutes a day and let him define you and tell you who you are? And yet, what gets in the way of doing that? David Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, but you say, I'm extremely busy. Look at my agenda. Where do I have time? 
I say, if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, you'll find time. You will order your life. You will say, first things must come first. There is a priority in these matters. And though I have to do this, that, and the other, I cannot afford to neglect this because my soul is in bondage. It is amazing how we find time to do the things we want to do. Here's, here's the thing that we need to drop out of our vocabulary. I don't have time for that. We need to stop saying that. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the, the fact that we, use, we start to use non-moral words for sin. Right? We, we, we use words like weakness or, or failure. Let's call sin, sin. But when we say, I don't have time for that, you know, at, at best, we're deflecting the truth. At, at worst, we're just lying to ourselves. I don't have time for that. Look, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a college student or if you're an empty nester. I don't care if you got kids, if you're, if you're married or not. I, I don't care what, what financial income bracket you find yourself in. I don't, I don't care what your level of education is. I, I don't care. All of us have one thing in common, and that's time. You have 60 seconds in your minute. So do I. Same amount of minutes in an hour, and hours in a day, and days in a week, and weeks in a year. We have the same amount of time. It's not about time. It's about priority. The truth is not, I don't have time for that. The truth is this. That's not a priority to me. And look, there are things in your life you should point out and say, that's not a priority to me. There are things in life you need to say no to. Jesus isn't one. Replace the word that with a male pronoun, he. He is not a priority to me. Replace that with you. Because every time you go through your day and you've neglected to make that him a priority, what you're saying to him is you, God. You are not a priority to me. Would you tell your child that? Would you tell your spouse that? Would you tell your best friend that? You are not a priority to me. You say, ah, oh, Justin, that's shame and guilt, man. That's below the belt. I'm under grace. Yep. Here's grace. Tomorrow night, after you've gone after your, after your identity and your, your, your career, after you've carted your children all over the place, after you've doom-scrolled Facebook, and after you watched six episodes of Yellowstone, and you sit down in your bed, finally exhausted, having made no time for God, call out to him and say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the righteousness that you've given me that I haven't earned. Thank you for the love that you've expressed to me through your son and the sending of him and his dying in my place. Thank you for the grace that enabled me to go through this day without giving you a single moment's thought. That's grace. Thank him. You see, sometimes guilt is not a product of religious legalism. Sometimes guilt is just common sense. That we would look at the God of the universe who did what he did for us. That we'd look at his son and the blood that he, he poured out for us, that he took our place of wrath and judgment, that he did all that for us, and we would say, thank you. 
You're not a priority to me. Last one. Are we putting ourselves in the way of getting righteous? Are we surrounding ourselves with people who want to be righteous? Who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness themselves? Are, are, we, are we putting ourselves in contexts where we can exhort others towards righteousness and who will exhort us towards righteousness? Are we surrounding ourselves through, through, through relationships, whether that's house church or discipleship groups or coming to this? Are we putting ourselves in the way of righteousness? Are, are, are we in scripture? Are we getting scripture into us? Are we praying? Are you asking for righteousness? See, this is, this is the starting point. If you're here this morning, you say, I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I know I don't. I want. This is where you start. Lord Jesus, I want. I want. So we come to what it means this is a, a, a beatitude, a blessing, a, a blessing. What does it mean that this, that this points us to flourishing and thriving and fruitfulness? I think we need to import, understand that the, the blessedness that's talked about here, the flourishing, thriving, all that, that that's a byproduct of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's, it's, it's the result that if you pursue blessing, if you pursue happiness in and of itself, if you go after a flourishing, thriving, fruitful life, if that's the aim, you'll wind up empty. However, if you go after righteousness, you'll get the flourishing. So one is a, is a byproduct of the other. Happiness isn't the goal. Satisfaction even, isn't even the goal. Jesus is the goal. And if you get him, you get everything else. I'll conclude uh, the message with this. Imagine you're hungry, and you come to your table, and your favorite food is being served. And you take that first bite. And you know the first bite is the beginning of the end, right? It's just a matter of time before you reached the place of fullness, and the meal's over. That's it. But you take that first bite, and, and it's just as good as you expect it to be. Right? It's just so delicious, and it hits your stomach, and you're just like, mmm. And you take that second bite, and it's as good as the first. And the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, and every bite as good as the first. And yet you notice you're not filling up. That, that as you eat, you have this unlimited capacity for more. And you never reach that state of being too full. It's just this continuous satisfaction and joy and delight with each bite. Now imagine that around that table are people that love you and you love, and at the head of it is Jesus. And the conversation is rich, and the laughter is full, and life is happening. This is a picture of what Jesus wants for us in a flourishing, complete kind of life. It is what's being offered for us. Why are we settling for less? Spend your life chasing happiness and you'll never be satisfied. Spend your life chasing Jesus and you'll never be empty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your, for your abiding, steadfast, patient love that entered into, into our history at just the right moment. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for sacrificing. Thank you for living the way that you lived in order to die the death you died. Father, thank you for rising, raising our, his son, your son from the dead. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower us, that as we leave here today, we hunger and thirst for more, that, that we would never want to find an end to it. Help us to hunger and thirst. In Jesus' name.